It's a delight to be here. In the 12th century, there's a guy named Maimonides. I have this incredible love-hate relationship with Maimonides. First of all, I, I resent the fact that everything we think about God came from Maimonides. No one person should have that much influence on how we think. Um, when we were little kids and we were in Sunday school or Hebrew school and we learned to, to say, um, what does God look like? And we were taught to say, God doesn't look like anything. God is invisible. That's Maimonides. Right? All the things that we normally think about Maimonides are, are from, uh, about God are from Maimonides. And that just kind of irritates me. However, he was a very smart guy. And one of the things he told us that is very, very smart is that we can't know anything about God. Anything at all. We just can't. God is unknowable for many reasons, which uh, we don't have to get into at the moment. The question is, what do we human beings do when we are confronted with something that we don't know about or that we don't know about very well. One of the ways that we respond is by using metaphor. A metaphor is something that I first encountered in eighth grade in Mrs. Brown's English class. She was quite an awful teacher, and I remember her with no fondness whatsoever. But I do remember that she taught us about metaphors, and I also remember that I wrote a poem, and she criticized it because it didn't have punctuation that was correct, and it was, it was a very, very bad thing. But she did tell us about metaphors. What's a metaphor? If I want to know what frogs' legs taste like, I ask you, because I'm certainly not brave enough to eat them, because I'm vegetarian and I keep kosher, and frogs are neither vegetables nor kosher. I say, what do frogs' legs taste like? And you say, chicken. like chicken. Okay, like chicken is a metaphor. Right? What a metaphor does is it takes something unfamiliar and it compares it to something familiar and by the comparison tells me something about the unfamiliar thing that I'm interested in knowing about. That's the way so much of human thought works. We use metaphors for everything. And it's not just a matter of speech or a matter of language. It's a matter of thinking. That's the way we think. We compare known, unknown things to better known things and that's the way we make comparisons. Right? We use them all the time. Now, a couple of things about metaphors that you have to realize, and this is not rocket science. None of the book is actually rocket science, despite the fact that physics is in the title. Um, metaphors are imperfect. All metaphors are imperfect. All metaphors, if you push them far enough, they have a breaking point. So, we could say, um, man, he comes around here every day just like clockwork. Right? Now, what does that mean? It, do, it means that he comes around in a regular, predictable way, roughly at the same time every day. It doesn't mean that his face is round and has numbers on it and that, it, that he has hands attached to his nose. They go, right? You say, of course not. Don't be silly. It's a, it's a metaphor. Well, that's just a simple point. And it'll become important when we start talking about God metaphors. Because following on Maimonides' observation that we can't know anything about God, anything at all, we are stuck with metaphor. All that we know about God, all that we say about God, all that we believe about God is metaphor. Right? I'll give you a couple of examples. Example number one. 23rd Psalm, we're all familiar with it. Unfortunately, we're mostly familiar with it from funerals and other sad times. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay? What does it mean? Well, what, when, when we say the Lord is my shepherd, what images does it evoke in our heads? Sheep. Pasture, guide, we are following. What else does the shepherd do? It takes care of the sheep. How? Let's be a little more specific. Keeps them from running away. 
that makes sure we get the, makes sure we get the right food, protects us from the wolves and the coyotes, right? So all of these things are wonderful images for God. God protects us. God keeps us from getting lost. God makes sure we have the right food to eat and water to drink. God protects us from our enemies. God cares for us. All those are wonderful, wonderful shepherd metaphors. But remember, metaphors are not perfect. If you push them hard enough, they fall apart. To wit, why does the shepherd shepherd sheep? Well, because it's a good way to make a living. Some people are real estate people. Some people are computer programmers. Some people do shepherding. We don't usually think about God as taking care of us as a way of making a living. More than that, every once in a while, the shepherd's family calls him up and says, uh, Dad, we're really hungry. We hope you're bringing home a really good dinner. So he selects a sheep and brings it home and kills it and feeds it to his family. Now, I would suggest to you that when we are all very somber because we're sitting at a funeral and someone intones, usually rabbi intones, Adonai ro'i lo achzar, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We don't generally think of God taking us home and killing us and eating us or serving us to his family. Okay, you say, but it's only a, a metaphor. Don't go crazy with it. Well, that's just the point. Now, there's some other problems with this metaphor. How many of you have ever worked as a shepherd, even for like an hour? <laughs> Half an hour. <laughs> Ten minutes. It's actually a dangerous question, depending on where you are. I asked the question in Flower Mound, Texas. A bunch of hands went up, so... <laughs> The point I'm making is that if I ask you what frog's legs taste like and you say chicken, there's a fairly good chance in our society that I know chicken, that it's a familiar thing and therefore it's a useful metaphor. But if you say, kind of like rattlesnake, chances are, given societal norms, that if I haven't tasted frog's legs, I also haven't tasted rattlesnake. So it's not a useful metaphor. It may be a, an accurate metaphor, but it's not useful. So the fact that we talk about God as shepherd, even though none of us have ever had any real personal experience shepherding, is a problem. Let's take another metaphor, another traditional metaphor. Let's take two. We'll get two for the price of one. Avinu malkeinu. Our father, our king. Two metaphors. We get two metaphors in one song. Right? So let's talk about them one at a time. Father. When we say God as Father, what does it evoke? Pardon? Discipline. Love. Protection. Authority. Why did you say shepherd? My father is a shepherd. Pardon? Likeness? What do you mean? Ah, similarity, spitting image of his father. Interesting. Okay, good, good. What else? What else does our father do for us? Give, sustains us, gives us, you know, bring, brings home the, you should excuse the expression, brings home the bacon or brings home the sheep or brings home the tofu in some cases. Brings home a salary to feed the family, provides for, provider, right? Teacher, guide, guardian. Right? All those things. But again, if we push it hard enough, we find that the, that the metaphor has breakdown points. What are the breakdown points? Well, in this particular case, there are a couple. Oh, it's a clock. 
consort of mom. So, so, one, so one interesting breakdown point for God as father is fathers tend to be overwhelmingly, but we have to be careful because it's a new age, overwhelmingly male. Right? Mostly. And in the last 20 or 30 years, there are lots of Jews who say, you know what? I'm a little bothered by a God metaphor that is overwhelmingly male since I am over... Not me particularly, but some people, roughly 50 or 51% of our Jews say, I am overwhelmingly female. And if God is overwhelmingly male, that kind of leaves me feeling a little less in God's image. And so we get prayer books and, 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 and humash translations and all kinds of other things that try to get around the use of male pronouns and all that stuff. So it's a little problem. So one problem with God as father is that fathers are male. Another problem is that under normal circumstances, we live to see our fathers grow old, unfortunately often feeble, sometimes senile, and die, and we bury them. No, 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 you say, that's not what we mean. So another example of a metaphor that is imperfect. I point out the imperfection of metaphors because in a few minutes we're going to get to new metaphors and you're going to say, but wait a second, that doesn't work. Well, the point is that no metaphor works perfectly. So don't expect perfection from a metaphor. We do the same thing with King, but let's not bother. So everything we know about God is metaphor. But the metaphors sometimes don't work. I would suggest that when people say they have problems with God, belief in God, I'm not sure, I believe in God, maybe God ex exists, maybe not. I don't think they have problems with God. I think they have problems with specific traditional metaphors for God. And the proof of that is that if you listen long enough, and you don't have to listen very long, it usually takes no more than a minute or two, in this kind of discussion, someone will say, you know, the old man with a white beard sitting up in heaven. So right away when I hear that, I say, oh, so it's not God that you have a problem with. It's a particular portrayal of God as an old man with a white beard sitting up in heaven, which is like a whole stack of metaphors. Right? It's a man, it's old, it's a white beard, it's up, it's heaven, it's a whole, con a, whole, whole, a whole cluster of metaphors. And the metaphors don't work for a lot of people. They don't work for me, for example, to name just one. Right? By the way, it's an interesting metaphor, the old man with the white beard. It comes from the book of Daniel. I actually had to track it down when I was writing. It comes from the book of Daniel, and the beard was not white in the book of Daniel. The clothing was white. Um, so it's, it's interesting how the, the metaphor gets kind of shifted. But in any case, it doesn't work very well uh, for many reasons. So I start my project with the idea that a lot of people have trouble with God, not because they have trouble with God, but because they have trouble with the specific language, not just language meaning words, but language meaning the thoughts, because thoughts are expressed in language, the language that we've used to describe and portray God for lo these many years. All you have to do is open a prayer book, open a siddur, and page through, and look in the English, not the Hebrew, unless your Hebrew is really, really good, and make sure it's a good, old-fashioned, literal translation, and you begin to say, what? God is a man of war, right? God is the father and our king? I don't get it. So I, I decided that it would be a useful thing if we look for new metaphors. Now, new metaphors, on their surface, aren't doing anything to the frog's legs, 
All they're doing is improving the understanding of Nelson, who's too much of a, of a chicken and a kosher vegetarian, to try the frog's legs. So, so instead of using the old metaphor, tastes like chicken, I'm going to use some new metaphors. Oh, you know, it tastes like that tofu, that baked tofu kind of stuff, right? The, using new metaphors is not going to change God initially. Ah, but it is. And I'll give you a hint as to why it is. Unlike other metaphors, if I want to know what frog's legs taste like, and you say, well, it's a little bit like chicken, but it's not like baked chicken, it's a little like roasted chicken, you know, it's really hard to describe, I can finally say, you know what, forget it. I'm going down to the corner bistro, and I'm going to have some frog's legs. I can actually taste the thing itself. I don't have to depend on the metaphor. With God, we can't do that. We're stuck with the metaphors. That's all we have. So in fact, when we suggest new metaphors, what we end up suggesting, although this wasn't the initial plan, we end up suggesting new ways of understanding God. God changes, as it were, or our understanding of God changes. So that is what I discovered, much to my surprise as I was writing. Um, and that's what made it more exciting. It was more than just a book about language. Um, why I chose the language of physics to explore God metaphors is a whole other evening. It's not worth going into. Uh, I'm delighted while we sign books and schmooze later uh, to, to go into it. But the idea was to use the language of new physics, new physics meaning everything from Albert Einstein and going forward, to look for new metaphors. Now, it didn't have to be physics, by the way. It could have been anything. I'm waiting for someone. It's not me because I don't have the, the knowledge or, or, frankly, the interest. But someone who's really into music to do the same book using musical metaphors. You know, God as um, fugue, God as round, God as melody, God as harmony, God as harmonics. It, it can go anywhere. Uh, we could do it with, with almost any discipline. I chose to do it with physics. Um, so, we're going to explore some new metaphors. I forgot to look at my watch when we started. Okay. What time are we going to end? Nine? Nine good? Okay, nine is good. One of the things that lots of religions attribute to God is creation of the universe. Right? Not only Judaism and Christianity and Islam, but also lots of ancient pre-monotheistic religions. And... Judaism has a, a general theme about how God created the universe and what it looked like. And there are lots of little variations on the theme, but the variations aren't really important. Let's just do the theme. The theme is that a certain point in the finite past, maybe just under 6,000 years ago, but it doesn't really matter when, at a certain point in the finite past, God, who is and was and always had been a uh, sentient, thinking, feeling being or entity or something, it's hard to use a noun, that's the pro one of the problems, um, who, who was out there somewhere, that's another problem where the somewhere is, decided, and the deciding is very important, decided to create the world and therefore created it. And here we are. And there are lots of variations on the theme. One Kabbalistic variation is very nice. It says that God filled up everything and, and before creating the world had to make some space because there was no space because everything was God. And so God did this tzimtzum thing. God kind of sucked in the divine gut. 
to make some empty space in which to create the world. So there, a space where there wasn't God. That's one variation. We have two more variations in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first chapter says six days. First is light. The second is separation of right, uh, waters. And fourth day is sun, moon, and stars. And the sixth day is animals and people. Then the second chapter is a completely different story. The second chapter starts out with a garden and then a, needs a man, an Adam, a human, a, an earthling to, to tend the garden. So Adam is created from dirt and then uh, Adam is lonely and so God creates animals and none of them are very good companions and so God creates a woman out of the rib. I mean, so these are all variations on theme, but it's the same basic theme. I don't buy the theme. By the way, I don't think most Jews... I think it's very, very, very hard to find a Jew who really buys the theme literally anywhere in Jewish history because at least for the last 2,000 years, Jews led by rabbis have not taken this literally. We've taken it very seriously, but not literally. We don't have any scriptural fundamentalists in Jewish tradition. Why they appeared in, in Christian tradition is another whole very interesting discussion for another time. So I don't buy it. I don't buy that there's a sentient God because I want to know where that sentient God came from. I want to know what it means for God to be sentient. I want to know what it means for God to be out there when there was no there there, right? Before it was said about Los Angeles, it was said about the universe. There was no there. There was no universe for where was God? Where? Right? So, and I don't believe, uh, I don't believe, the whole thing doesn't work for me. So I look in physics and I read one physics book after another, after another, after another, and after a while you begin to realize that there's a pretty good consensus among physicists, specifically the branch of physics that calls itself cosmology, which is the study of where the universe came from. And the cosmologists all have a pretty good general idea of where the universe came from. Again, there's some variations on the theme, but the theme is as follows. Until two nights ago, I used to say somewhere between 13 and 15 billion years ago, but two nights ago, I was told by an astronomer at University of Colorado that the new figure, brand new data, is 13.7, so <laughs> such a good number. 13.7 billion years ago, give or take 200 million years, <laughs> there, was an there was an event called the Big Bang. The Big Bang, listen carefully, it's a weird thing I'm about to say, the Big Bang was an explosion that originated in a point of zero size, infinite heat, infinite density. It exploded and initially the ex what exploded was pure energy after a few very, very, very short moments, the energy as it went outward cooled and to use the language of one science writer, congealed into matter. The initial matter is hydrogen atoms and you get helium atoms. Bunches of helium atoms get together, they clump together, they explode, they turn into suns, into stars. Inside the stars, heavier metals, heavier elements get made. You get carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and, and iron and, and all those good things. Those get spewed out as stars die and 13.7 billion, billion years later, here we are. One more thing, and then I'll draw the conclusion. Four things appeared in the wake of the Big Bang. Matter, energy, time, and space. Now, I look at that statement. Four things appear after the Big Bang. Matter, energy, time, and space. And I say to myself, 
So the Big Bang is essentially responsible for the creation of the universe, because I can't imagine anything else you need to create a universe aside from matter, energy, time, and space. There is nothing else. So I ask the fundamental question. What would it do for our religious lives? How would it affect our religious lives if we added to our repertoire of God metaphors God as Big Bang. We have God as shepherd, God as father, God as king, God as lover, God as judge, God as all kinds. God as Big Bang. Yeah, go ahead. Please. Oh, I should have said at the beginning, uh, jump in with questions. I may reserve the right to put off a question until later, but please, don't wait for the end. Yeah, please. Almost all the physicists, except for the quantum physicists, say, I don't know. <laughs> and the reason they say that is, well, there's several reasons. First of all, when we look out into the universe with a telescope, we're also looking back in time. Because the light that we see from a star that is, say, a billion light years away is not the light that that star emitted today. It's rather the, star, the light that that star emitted a billion, light, a billion years ago, which is why it's called a billion light years away. Okay? So as we get better and better and better and better telescopes, we should be able to see farther and farther and farther away. Eventually, you say, we should be able to see 13.7 billion light years away, and there we'll see the Big Bang. We'll be able to see the whole thing. The scientists say, no, we're sorry. It doesn't work like that. We could theoretically see all the way back to a fraction of a second after the Big Bang, but we can't see the Big Bang itself. And the reason is that in the first fraction of a second after the Big Bang, the energy is so hot and so dense that no photons can escape. So no, no light can get out, essentially. It's all kept together until it cools enough, and then the photons start springing away, and, and then we can see it. So there is a fundamental cloak of secrecy around the last little tiny fraction of a second right after the Big Bang, or from our perspective, as we go back towards the Big Bang right before we get to it. That's one reason. Second reason is causality is generally linked to time. In other words... When our kids get into a fight, we want to know who started it, which means who yelled at whom first. First is the operative word here. He started it. He punched me. Yeah, but she called me stupid. Yeah, but he... Right? So you want to check... You want to go back in the chain of causality to the first event. The problem with the Big Bang is, when, when we ask about the causality of the Big Bang, one of the things that appears after the Big Bang is time. And if there is no time, there is no before. So the scientists, all but one group of scientists, and I'll get to them in a second, the scientists say, it doesn't make any sense. We, we, we can't even ask the question, what caused the Big Bang? It happened. Enough. The only exception to that is the quantum physicists. Quantum mechanics is the laws um, that govern the tiniest, 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 tiniest level of reality, subatomic particles, things like that. In the quantum world, in the world of very, 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 very tiny things, back up. In the big world, 
the world of bowling balls and billiard balls and planets and comets and cars and things. Nothing happens unless something else causes it. This is a, a bedrock principle of Aristotle. Nothing happens unless something else causes it. Newton said, an object at rest tends to stay at rest forever and some, and th until something hits it and pushes it. Right? An, an object is in motion, it's going to stay in motion forever in a straight line unless something pushes it. Right? The quantum physicists say, that's fine, on a big level, on a small level it doesn't work. On a small level, things happen all the time for no reason. They just happen. There is, at the smallest level of reality, a not a smooth emptiness, empty nothingness, but rather a boiling turmoil of what the quantum physicists call quantum foam. It's almost, you know, if you, if you take a detergent and you run hot water on it, real high pressure, it just bubbles up and it gets all foamy, right? That is the image that the quantum physicists describe at the tiniest, tiniest level of reality. So one of the physicists, um, uh, a guy named Paul Davies, brilliant, brilliant physicist at the Australian Institute for Astrobiology, says, for most physicists, the, idea, the question of where the Big Bang came from, what caused the Big Bang, is unanswerable because there had to be a prior cause. But for the quantum physicists, you don't have to have a prior cause because things are spontaneously happening all the time. They just happen without a prior cause. Right? Yeah. For those two words you're using to describe what? To describe what? Well, actually, we can't. The, the physicists say we, we can't even think about what the world was like before the creation because there's no before. Because in order to have a before, you need time. And there was no time. Everything, right. And, and we look at an empty space. They say if you looked at it on a small enough level, you would see it's not really empty. There's constantly particle appears, antiparticle appears, they meet each other, they explode. On average, nothing has happened. And so we look at it and we say it's empty, cold space. They say, no, 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 there's a lot of stuff happening there. Okay, so the basic question is what happens if we use the Big Bang as a metaphor for God? And now I'm going to share with you the criterion for my judgment of the quality of God metaphors. If a God metaphor enriches my religious life, enriches my understanding of God, enriches my sense of meaning in the universe and my, and my sense of, of Jewish thought and belief, if it's, if it's good for me, it's a good metaphor. And if it's not good for me, it's a bad metaphor. But we know that all metaphors are some good and some bad, so I have to weigh. It's cost-benefit analysis. If the metaphor gives me more than it costs me, it's good. If it costs me more than it gives me, it's not good. So that's how I'm going to judge each, med each metaphor. So Big Bang is God. One of the things we know about the universe is that everything that exists, all stuff, me, you, the house, the land it's sitting on, the ocean, the air, the moon, everything, everything. If you trace its history back 13.7 billion years, give or take 200 million, if you trace it back that far, it's all at the same point, at the same time, 
a point of zero size. Everything is crammed into nothingness. Which means that when I am in contact with my world, when I deal with my world, everything that I deal with, everyone that I deal with, is God, because everything came from the Big Bang, and therefore, if God is the Big Bang, everything came from God. Everything is God. God is essentially the fabric of the universe. I find that, personally, a religiously inspiring notion. Next. One of the other things, aside from all the stuff in the universe that came from the Big Bang, was the space of the universe. Now, this is a very, very hard concept to grasp. Most of us think about space as the emptiness in which stuff happens. Physicists say, no, space is actually a real thing, although we can't actually see it. It's not a physical thing, but it's a real thing. And the space of the universe is actually expanding. And if we kind of run the video of the universe in reverse, the space of the universe would contract until 13.7 billion, give or take 200 million, years ago, at which point all the space of the universe, the space on Earth and the space around the rings of Saturn and the space in the farthest galaxy that our best telescopes can see was all crammed into that point of zero size, which means that there is no such thing as this wonderful phrase that we, we uh, Northeasterners use, and you, and you West Coasters probably use too, to describe places in Nebraska and Idaho, a God-forsaken place. <laughs> There's no such thing as a God-forsaken place because the space itself is as much God as the stuff that happens in it. So now we go back to some Jewish texts. Twice a day, traditional Jews sing Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Listen, Israel, listen, Jews, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai is one. What does it mean? Well, I know what it meant to the author of Deuteronomy then. What it meant to the author of Deuteronomy then was God is one, not two, not three, not a half a dozen, not 37, there isn't a God of the woods and a God of the stream and a God of the field and a God of the sky and a God of the moon and a God of the sun and a God of the stars and a God of the forest and a God of the, the ocean and a God of the hunt and a God of the, right? No, 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 no. It's all one God. No polytheism, no paganism, only one God, not more than one. That's what it used to mean. The problem with that is that we won that battle. Most of us kind of accept monotheism in theory. The problem now isn't that we think that there's more than one God, it's that we think there's no God at all. <laughs> so the idea that all stuff, no matter how disparate, you know, the rocks in the desert and the rocks on the moon, the buildings in New York and the buildings in Los Angeles, the people in China and the people here, it's all the same stuff. If you trace its history back far enough, it's all at the same place in the same time. So now, for me, the oneness of God, the echad at the end of Shema Yisrael, what the echad means is that God is a fundamental unity that links all things. All things are made of the same stuff, and that stuff is God. That's what it means when it says Adonai echad, God is oneness. There aren't two substances in the world. There's only one substance, not only in the world, in the whole universe. And by the way, the physicists also teach us, don't get too hung up on the distinction between matter and energy, because on the smallest level, there's no distinction. So not only is there only one substance, meaning only one form of matter, 
There's also only one form of energy, and it's the same as the one form of matter, and it's all God. So all of a sudden, Adonai Echad has deeper meaning for me when I daven in the morning. Yes. Did you hear the, the comment? She said, it's, 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 I'm going to use your words exactly, so correct me as I go along. She said, so you're saying you really can taste the frog, right? It's, it's everything around. It's the matter, the energy. It's, it's you know, it's my body. Now I'm, now I'm editorializing. It's my body. It's the food I eat. It's, the, it's my kids. It's the soccer ball that they kick. It's, it's everything, right? So hold on to that for a second, and I'll tell you about another liturgical statement that I find personally more meaningful once I deal with God as Big Bang. Shabbat morning service, Shachrit, the Amidah, the Kedusha. Right? If, you don't, if you're lost now, don't worry about it. It's not important. There's a line in the prayer book that says, Mimkomcha malkenu tofia, which means our king, addressing God, appear from your makom, right? Now, makom means place. Place is like space. So, I don't know what that originally meant when it was put into the prayer book, but now I look at it and, it's, and I say, oh, so what that means is God appear from your Macombness, your spaceness. In other words, one of the ways God is concealed, but it's not really concealed. That's a, it's it's a it's a misleading word. I just can't think of a better one off the top of my head. One of the guy, one of the one of the ways God is is space, but that's a very hard way to perceive God, right? Because I just walk through it all the time, and I'm not aware that God is there. So much so that when I land in in you know in Butte, Montana to use one of Lenny Bruce's favorite places. When I land in Butte, Montana, I get off and say, what a godforsaken place. Get me back to Manhattan, right? <laughs> Which is, of course, not godforsaken. Um, so the fact that I perceive it initially as godforsaken just means it's very, very hard to, find, to see God in the space. To see is the, uh, also wrong. To, to feel, to perceive God in the space. So the prayer says, God, please appear from your Macombness, your spaceness, in, in a form that I can more easily identify. So, yes, we can taste the frog, but it's hard to know when we're tasting. In other words, we can perceive God directly, but it's hard to know and it's hard to train ourselves. If you ask people, if you, even, even little kids, we train them early. Have you ever seen God? And they say, no, no one can see God. Well, what this is suggesting is that, yes, everyone can see God, right? All you have to do is open your eyes and look, and any direction you look, there God is. Sort of the way that back in the, I think the 50s, but if there are any engineers or Are there any engineers or physicists here? I should have asked at the bidding. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, uh, you'll correct me if I get the dates wrong. Sometime in the 50s or 60s, these engineers, starting with two guys at Bell Labs in, uh, in New Jersey, looked out and discovered the cosmic background radiation, what they refer to as the echo of the Big Bang. In other words, if you look out, if you point a radio telescope any direction, any direction in the universe, you get a very, very, very quiet kind of hiss of background microwave radiation. And they used to think it was just kind of like, you know, noise in the circuit. And what they realized, no, it's, it's the echo. It's the last quiet echo. 
It's like, it's like the ripples in the pond. If you get a great big pond, when you get a mile from where the rock fell, the ripples are so small you can hardly see them, but you know they're there, right? So, what from your placeness, God, please appear, means is, I wish we could see you and be aware of you in a more obvious way, in a way that we could train ourselves better. But that's what the metaphor does for me. So enough of the good stuff. Is that a, is that a comment or question in the back? Yeah, go ahead, please. So, you know, I buy this actually, and, and, and I'm very humble, but I'm not sure what it says about, you know, okay, the entire universe is translated as, as you know, the, the fabric of God from, from the time of the beginning, which means that, you know, my protoplasm and the substance of <clears throat> some of the rocks they just discovered on this moon on Saturn, you know, all came from the same place, but I'm not sure, that, that's satisfying to me on, a, on an intellectual level, but I'm not sure it's satisfying to me on a humanistic level, you know, what, so what does that say about God and life and God and humanity? Okay, good, perfect, perfect segue. So, um, so, so I've, I've given you a little, a little, hang on one second, let me just form the question, then I'll get your comment. I've given you a little taste of, <coughs> of what I think are the, the positive sides, the, the benefits of this metaphor. Now we're going to shift over and do the cost of the metaphor, and then you'll weigh for yourself. I've weighed for myself. You'll weigh for yourself it's a, if it's a useful metaphor. But before that, we'll get a comment. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to understand, is there a distinction between God being the Big Bang and God causing the Big Bang. Sure, because we don't know what caused the Big Bang, so we're just identifying God as the Big Bang. As a matter of fact, there's a really interesting discussion in Paul Davies' book, The Mind of God, where he poses, he, he, he hypothesizes a discussion between a theist and an atheist, and the theist says, but why don't you just posit that God caused the Big Bang? And the atheist basically says, because there's no reason to. Well, I don't think it's that there's no reason to. I think that there's just no benefit in saying God caused the Big Bang. In other words, there's no benefit to proposing that sentient God who is essentially the old man with the white beard sitting out there in heaven who causes, who wants to form the earth, but instead of doing it as a mud pie, does it with a big bang. All you're doing is changing the methodology of creation. What I'm saying is that I want to use as a metaphor the fact that the very creative processes that form the universe are God. Right? So let me hold off questions a little bit and get some of the downsides, some of the costs of the metaphor. The metaphor is very lovely. It makes, me, it makes me aware that God's presence is literally everywhere and in everything. It gives me a sense of the unity of the whole universe. It just is wonderful. There are only a couple of problems. Problem number one, in no particular order. Um, Jewish tradition has a pretty strong sense that God did not simply create and then sit back. That's called deism. It's the, it's the watchmaker view of God, where God is the watchmaker who builds the watch, winds it up, sets it on the table, and then stands back and watches it do its thing, right? Judaism has generally rejected that in favor of a position that says God intervenes in everyday life. God takes us out of Egypt to remind us of something that's coming up altogether too quickly, right? God reveals Torah at Sinai at a particular time. God does stuff in life or fails to do stuff in life, in which case people say, where was God in the Holocaust, which, is, which, which we'll get to, right? But we expect God to be an interventive God, and therefore, 
the Big Bang doesn't intervene in anything. The Big Bang just was 13.7, give or take 200 million years ago, and that's it. So that's problem number one. Problem number two. We also have a pretty clear sense that among the ways that God intervenes is to command. And I might even say, some critics might even say, that any description of Jewish thought that does not include a source of mitzvah, a source of commandment, falls. It's a fatal flaw. Number three, we also have a pretty strong sense that God is not value neutral. Rather, God has some pretty strong sense of good and evil, just and unjust, right? Good and bad, all that stuff. And finally, we have an ancient, ancient tradition of chatting with God. In other words, having relationship with God. The way we would have a relationship with a father or a mother or a spouse or a friend or a teacher or an anybody else. And that's what prayer at least for some people in some ways, is all about having a chat with God. Those of you who were with us last night, Reb Nachman of Bratislav clearly sees prayer as an opportunity to chat with God. And that, now we look back at these four things and we say, excuse me, the Big Bang, one, doesn't intervene, two, doesn't command, three, couldn't care less about good and evil, it just generates energy, and four, uh, you could talk to it, but you know, it wouldn't really care very much. Talking to a cocker spaniel is probably more fulfilling. So what do I do with this? Are these fatal flaws? Is, this, is the cost of the metaphor worse than or higher than the benefit? For me, the answer is no. Let me play out a little bit why and then, and then get comments and responses. Let's start with um, good and evil and intervention. Let's start with good and evil. Good and evil and mitzvah, those are the two let's do first. I don't believe that they come from an outside external spiritual, uh, supernatural God. I believe they come from the people. Good and evil are human categories. They are not natural categories. They are not animal categories. They are not geological categories or physical categories. They are human categories. They are no less powerful as human categories than they would be if they were divinely revealed categories revealed by a supernatural God. We even have this in Jewish tradition. Um, in the uh, 10th or 11th century, we've got a guy named Saadia Gaon. And Saadia says there are two kinds of mitzvot in the Torah. There's one kind of mitzvot that even if God didn't tell us, we'd be smart enough to figure out on our own. And then there are other mitzvot that God told us that had God not told us, we wouldn't have figured out. So if God had not told us to tie little fringes on the corners of our garments, we wouldn't know about it. If God had not told us not to eat chametz on Pesach, we wouldn't have known about it. But if God had not told us that murdering people is not a nice thing to do, most normal societies would have figured it out even without God. By which I think Saadia is saying exactly what I'm saying. Good and evil are no less powerful, profound, and compelling categories if they only, that's in air quotes for the people just listening on the recording, only come from human beings than if they come from God. Right? So that's about, about good and evil. Mitzvot, it's the same thing. 
two and a, two and a half weeks from now, we're going to sit down at Seder. We have all these ancient traditions. We have laws. Some people go nuts with the laws about how many square inches of matzah you have to eat and how many minutes you have to eat them. And they, and they put the matzah in a plastic bag so it doesn't get crumbs in the soup. I mean, it's craziness. And we take these things very, very seriously. I don't think I have ever met a Jew, no matter how observant or non-observant he or she was, who did not ramp up his or her observance level a little bit on Pesach. Which meant if you're super, super, super from, you're super, 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 super from on Pesach, and it means that if you would care nothing about anything, you do a little bit on Pesach. I am reminded of the kid in the youth group who said to her youth group advisor, I'm so proud of myself. I was at McDonald's the other day, and I ordered a Big Mac with cheese, and then I remembered it was Passover, so I asked them to give it to me without the bun. <laughs> and we all, we've all, we know this. This is, uh, this is who we are. This is how we live, right? So these are very important to us. I would suggest that they are no less important to us if they, more air quotes, only come from human beings than if they come from a supernatural God who reveals them on Sinai. If this sounds, if you're, if you're familiar with Jewish thought, if this sounds a little bit like Mordechai Kaplan's view in the Reconstructionist movement, guilty as charged. I find myself drawn very often to, to Kaplan's thought, right? So, on the, so one, one argument is on both good and evil and mitzvot that they are human categories and that's okay. I don't need them to come from God. But if you push me, I will say, you know what, though? They do come from God. How? Well... What is a human being? A human being is a highly evolved creature that did all this invention of stuff like good and evil and mitzvot and matzah and square inches of karpas and all kinds of stuff because we have brains. And the brains that we have are remarkable things. The most remarkable brains, apparently, that our planet has ever seen. Maybe the most remarkable brains that anywhere in the universe has ever seen, but we don't know that yet but certainly the most remarkable brains our planet has ever seen. And those brains didn't exist a billion years ago. I mean, not our brains, but no brains like ours existed a billion years ago. Right? And four billion years before that, this planet didn't exist. And nine billion, 9.7 billion, give or take 200 million years before that, nothing existed except the Big Bang. In other words, the brains that we have that allow us to write voluminous commentaries about good and evil, and about God, and about Pesach laws, and about, you know, Supreme Court justices, and why this one should be uh, approved, and this one should be not approved, and, and what the legal arguments are, and strict constructionism, and right, those brains, they came from the Big Bang. Now, the, the mystery, it's not a miracle, because I use the word miracle in a very technical sense, the mystery is how the processes in the universe of self-organization took undifferentiated energy. There wasn't even any matter yet. Undifferentiated energy at the moment of the Big Bang and in the course of a mere 13.7 billion years turned it into brains that can write newspapers and argue about good and evil and law and order and justice and the Patriot Act and Democrats and Republicans, et cetera, et cetera, and, and all the sophisticated things we argue about all the time. 
So if you really push me on it, even the things that only came from human beings, good and evil and mitzvot, came indirectly from God. And what that raises is the very interesting question, which is a little off the topic, but a fascinating question, what you mean by revelation. We often have a mistakenly simplistic and childish view of Revelation. What is Revelation? Revelation is when all the Israelites stand like this at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God booms out from the top, sounding a lot like Charlton Heston. (laughs) Thou shalt have no other gods before me. (laughs) Right? But that's a very childish and simplistic view of Revelation, unless, of course, you're Cecil B. DeMille, in which case it's very cool. But it really isn't the way Revelation happens, even according to the rabbis. According to the rabbis, Revelation is a very complex process. There's a wonderful statement. It exists in the uh, Jerusalem Talmud. It exists in Vayikra Rabbah, which is a midrash on, on Leviticus. It exists several places that says Torah and Mishnah and Talmud and Midrash, and everything that a brilliant student says before his teacher were revealed to Moses on Sinai, which means that if in Tarbut Torah, next Tuesday, in Judaic studies, a fourth grader says something really brilliant that no one has ever thought of before about, I don't even know what, it was said to Moses on Sinai. Now, what they're saying, but where did the kid get it? Do you really believe there was some mysterious way that the, that, the, that the thought got from Moses at Sinai to the brain of the fourth grader at Tarbut Torah and then suddenly popped up? No. It's about cre- human creativity. What the rabbis are saying is revelation is this very, very complicated and indirect process whereby when an idea comes into my head, it's not clear to me. Where, it, where did that idea, wow, what a cool idea, where did it come from? So I can either take the theistic view and say, God must have planted it there, or I can say, take a much more naturalistic view and say, boy, the brain is a very mysterious creature, and my brain came up with a new idea. How incredibly cool is that? <laughs> right? And that's what, so, so, so those are good and evil and, and mitzvot. Um, Intervention is the same way. Intervention is the same thing. I don't need God to intervene in life. I need people to intervene in life. Right? So that when people say, where was God in the Holocaust? Once we have identified God as everything, then the question is, yeah, Taka, where was God in the Holocaust? Where were the peoples of the, of the world who, should have, who knew it was happening and should have stopped it earlier than they did and didn't? And we could ask, where is God in Darfur? And where was God in, in Armenia? And where is God, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and, 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 and where is God in New Orleans? Not meaning that God punished the people of New Orleans with a hurricane. No. Where was God when the people of New Orleans needed quick, efficient, compassionate help? Right? Where was God in the form of, whether it's, you know, a uh, Coast Guard, I mean, there were some wonderful stories. Where was God in the form of Coast Guard uh, officers who just did unbelievable things, or co- police officers who did unbelievable things, or government agencies that just completely screwed up? You know, where, so that's the, the where was God question. So I'm not bothered by these things. Now, let's, the one thing that we're left with is prayer. How do we talk to the Big Bang? Um, the answer for me is that when I, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, 
about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I was running a Shabbaton, a weekend retreat, uh, for the uh, for a young leadership group from the Minneapolis Federation and the St. Paul Federation, way the hell up north in Minnesota, like four and a half hours drive north of Minneapolis, St. Paul, in, uh, I don't remember the name of the place. Beautiful, beautiful place. Cold, very cold. Huh? No, it wasn't that far. I think it was, I don't remember where it was. Anyway, we were in a condo kind of place, and it was very pretty, and it was very, very, very cold, even though it was like April. And Saturday, and, and so we, we had services Friday night, we had services Shabbat morning, and we had Bir Katamazon after every meal, and, and we were having a discussion on Shabbat afternoon, and some guy says, you know, if God was a friend of mine, and God needed to be sucked up to as much as our God apparently needs to be, I wouldn't want to hang out with that person. And I tried to explain that it's not really sucking up to God, it's really, and he just didn't get it. He didn't get it. Okay. So then Saturday night comes, we make Avdala, I sit down with my guitar, we're playing, we're singing, Simon and Garfunkel, Pete Seeger, Judy Collins, James Taylor, we're having a great time, and the less hearty among them begin to drift off, right? So um, I was fine, uh, it, was, it was like midnight, 12.30, and one couple gets up and they wave goodbye and everyone waves goodbye and we're still singing and they leave. A minute later, they come running back and they say, quick, you all have to come outside. So we dash outside without coats, which is a big mistake because it's like 30 degrees. And the sky is lit up from horizon to horizon with northern lights, which I had never seen before. And we spend the next half hour going like this. <gasps> oh, wow. Oh, my God. And after about 20 minutes, the guy who had the argument with me that afternoon, he said, oh, so this is what it's about? I said, yeah, this is what it's about. The kind of prayer that works for me is the kind of prayer where we look at the world and we say, ma rabu ma'asecha Adonai. How vast, how multitudinous, how big, how numerous are your works, O oh God? Right? In any one of the metaphors I describe in the book, and there are many of them, we're just dealing with one tonight, the Big Bang, all, all, for all of them, that kind of prayer works. And I had a discussion, which I talk about in the last chapter, with some physicists, and one of them said, you know, when I'm sitting in my lab, fiddling with equations on my computer, I am just overwhelmed from time to time with the beauty and the elegance of it all. That kind of prayer works, which leaves out, I must admit very candidly, a big chunk of prayer. The chunk of prayer that says, please, God, give us fill in the blank. Please, God, heal grandma who's in the hospital. Please, God, grant us peace. So one of the things, I discovered some interesting things about my own beliefs in the course of writing the book. One thing that I discovered was that I don't, I don't do petitionary prayer. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. The idea that there is a puppeteer up there, and we are the marionettes, and if we ask nicely, the puppeteer will be nice to us unless he is angry and has had a bad day, in which case he won't be nice to us, which is an ancient, ancient Jewish idea, and it's not just Jewish, it's an ancient human idea, I just don't buy it anymore. I really believe that the universe does not respond to prayer, but rather prayer is our response to the universe. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't say Misha Barach for those who are sick. That's a whole other thing. But that's about human relationships, 
right? But I don't believe in a model of petitionary prayer where I ask the Big Bang for stuff and the Big Bang either says yes or no. That's just silly. I don't believe in it, right? So for me, that kind of prayer just doesn't function. Now, I say the words. Why do I say the words? Isn't that kind of hypocritical? Yeah, kind of, but a big part of prayer, as I mentioned briefly last night, is also the aspect of being together with community and reciting words that are hallowed, that's a pretty heavy word, hallowed by generations of Jews who have said the words. Sometimes I'm even willing to say words that not only do I not believe, but I actually find offensive just because they are our people's words. And it's nice to remember that the words, even the words that, that really, really irritate me or offend me, were our people's words. It kind of makes me upset, and, and then I have to struggle with what it means to be related to a people who said such and such words, right? But I still say the words. Okay, let me stop for, for a minute and, and get other responses, comments, questions. Yes? I'm pretty Okay. Um, there is a an interesting distinction between pantheism and panentheism. Uh, pantheism means everything is God. Panentheism means um, God is in everything. I'm not really picky about the distinction, but yes, I, I think I am more of a pantheist than not. Correct. Correct. So, uh, so yes, uh, guilty is charged on the first and second counts. The third count is, is an interesting count, and that is Kabbalah. Um, there, are, there are lots of interesting Kabbalistic um, pieces in what I discovered I actually believe. Um, so let me, let me play with uh, just one of them. Um, first of all, to back up a second, uh, one of the things I discovered about myself, aside from the fact that I don't believe in petitionary prayer, is that I don't believe in a personal God, by which I mean a God who is person-like, who has qualities that are like persons. Rather, I believe in a God who is the natural forces of, of the universe, the organizational, creative processes of the universe. And the other thing you should know is that that is not unique or new in Judaism. Uh, because I did mention some old metaphors, God, Father, and Shepherd, uh, King, Father, and Shepherd, but there are some others. I'll give you two others. One is rock, right? My rock and my redeemer, Tsuri Vigoali. And that's an ancient one. It goes all the way back to the Bible. And it is not person-like. It is not personal. And the other, and this is the one I'm coming to with Kabbalah, is God is my light, or. Right? Now, light is not a person. You cannot have a conversation with light. Right? Light does not care about you. Light just shines. That is its only job, and it does it better than anything else we know. Light is very interesting. One of the things I do in my chapter on special relativity, which is Einstein's first theory of re relativity that he developed 100 years ago last year, 1905, um, he talks about light, and he talks about the speed of light. Um, one of the things he says about the speed of light is that it's finite. It's very, 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 very fast, but it is finite. Nothing can be that fast except light, but it is finite. 
And we know that light occurs in lots and lots of different forms. Because light, we say light and we think of this stuff that we can see, but actually light is code for electromagnetic radiation. And, excuse me, and that comes in lots of different forms. There's x-rays and there's gamma rays and there's infrared and there's visible light and there's ultraviolet light. And there's all kinds of other things. There's radio waves and all kinds of stuff. It's the same stuff. It's just different wavelengths and frequencies of the exact same stuff. But the different wavelengths and frequencies have different names, and they affect us differently. One of them we need to read. If we don't have it, we can't read a book. Another one, we better put sunscreen on or else it'll burn us and give us cancer. It's the same stuff, but they have very, very different ways of functioning in the world. But they do all function in the world. So the Kabbalists, especially the 13th century Kabbalists in Spain, come up with two versions of God. There's the version of God that they call Einsof. Einsof means without end, meaning without boundaries, and something that is without boundaries is undefinable. We can no longer say, once we say it's without boundaries, we can't say anything more about it. Because the only way to define a thing is to be able to define its boundaries, either its physical boundaries or its some other kind of boundaries. If it has no boundaries, if it cannot be distinguished from anything else, then it cannot be described. And so that's a pretty short conversation. So, but they don't want to have such a short conversation. By the way, Ein Sof can't have any contact with the world. None. Can't intervene in the world, can't command the world, can't make a covenant with Israel, can't love Israel, can't punish Israel, can't reward, can't judge good and evil. Ainsof can do nothing. So the Kabbalists really believe that that's the, the core, the soul, the essence of God. But then they have a little problem, the same problem that I have. What about all those Jewish beliefs about all those things that God does? So they have to invent a different form of God to do stuff. And so they invent something that you've probably all heard of and you've probably even all seen, the circles with the lines that connect them, the spherot, the emanations. There are ten of them. The one that you're probably most familiar with, that you've heard of the most often, is Shekhinah, this lowest uh, feminine uh, presence of God that is most accessible to us. And so I play with the idea that the different spherot, each of which has different characteristics and does different stuff, and interacts with the world in different ways are kind of like the different frequencies and wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. Some are visible, some are not visible, some give us FM broadcasts, some make us sunburned, some cook our food, some x-ray our bones. It's all the same stuff, it's just very, very different forms. So different that we're not accustomed on our day-to-day -day colloquial way of thinking to think about them as the same stuff. But in fact, we know, obviously, when we think about it, that they are exactly the same stuff. They're all just electromagnetic radiation. Right? So the Kabbalists, in fact, had lots of insights into, and, and when, if, if, if you read the book, you will find repeated references to Kabbalah. Here's the caveat. And the caveat comes repeatedly in the book in several contexts. We must be careful, very, very careful, not to imagine that our ancestors in 13th century Spain or in 16th century Tzfat, or for that matter, the rabbis in, in the 4th century who were writing the Talmud, had some prescient knowledge of the Big Bang or electromagnetic radiation or any of this stuff. They didn't know physics. It would have completely weirded them out. They would have been completely perplexed by any of this language 
It's not that they had any foreknowledge, and it's certainly not that, as a very, very few religious physicists will claim, that God sort of planted this whole thing in everybody's head. What it is, is that human beings have certain intuitive senses about how the world is put together. When the Kabbalists are talking, they're not talking about physics, they're not talking about electromagnetic radiation, they're talking about God. It so happens that when physicists start talking about these other things, a lot of the new ideas of physics map remarkably well onto those older, um, those older kinds of thinking. But I caution you strongly against slipping into the trap, which is a very easy to, one to slip into, of saying, wow, our ancestors were so smart. They anticipated a thousand years before Einstein, they anticipated all this stuff, right? There's another piece in the book. I'll give you one more quick example. Um, there's an idea in, in, um, in Jewish tradition, lots of religious traditions, that God is ancient, ageless. There's a, a line in Psalms that says, um, uh, a, a moment in your sight is but a thousand years as they are past. In other words, God basically is there forever and doesn't age. There's a physicist at Columbia University named Brian Green who's got two best-selling books out. I only read the first one. Uh, the first one is called The Elegant Universe. It is so, so much fun to read. It is, you don't need any technical expertise. It is just a wonderful read, The Elegant Universe. And I haven't read his second book, but I would guess it's just as good. So Brian Greene says something very interesting in his book, The Elegant Universe. He points out that, according to physicists, all things in the universe always move at the speed of light. All things in the universe always move at the speed of light. But that speed for most things, like us, is divided. Part of it is speed through space. And part of it is speed through time, because time is just one of the other dimensions. There are three spatial dimensions. This is one, this is another, and this is a third, right? Three dimensions. So there are, most of our energy is spent moving through the fourth dimension, which is time. And a little bit is left over to move through space. And the combination of the amount of energy we spend moving through time, moving through space, adds up to the speed of light. But photons which are the little tiny particles of light, the smallest pieces of light, always move at light speed through space, which means that they don't move through time at all. Which means that a photon never ages. The photons coming from these lights are the same age now as they were at the moment of the Big Bang. They never get old. So now, all of a sudden, we take the old metaphor of God as light. God is my light and my salvation, a line from the Psalms. And we say, oh, so that's a different way of understanding what it means when it says that God doesn't age, that we age, that we're kind of trapped in this prison of time, but God isn't. But now I go back to the caveat again. This is not to suggest that the psalmist who says that a moment in your sight is like a thousand years is their past pre-knows, pre pre-imagines the idea that photons never age. Okay, let me, let me take some more. Uh, yes, here and then the back. Yes. I have a question about where hope fits in. Where hope? Hope fits in. Go ahead. We don't believe in God in a reading good or bad. For example, you want to hope that your family can survive. Right. 
American death doesn't suffer, or you want to hope that terrorism doesn't happen here in Israel. Where does that fit in this whole <laughs> Did everyone hear the question? Uh, the question is, um, where does hope fit in? For example, if you, wanna, if you hope that, that your parents don't suffer as they age, or you hope that there's no terrorism, or whatever you, the hope is, you know, you hope that this plane that has just taken off lands safely, um, where, does, where does hope fit in? Well, for me, hope certainly doesn't fit in hoping that God helps out. Um, hope fits in, first of all, there's a certain amount of uncontrollable random chance in the world, right? The possibility, let's use the one that I just brought up, maybe it's because I fly a lot, um, and maybe this is like my subconscious fear, although I don't think I'm afraid of flying, right? There is a chance in every flight that some part, some critical part of the plane will just fail, not because someone didn't maintain it right or because it was poorly manufactured, just because things sometimes wear out and it is impossible to predict when they will wear out. And if one thing wears out in a plane, generally planes are built so that if one thing wears out, it's okay. Even if two things wear out, it's okay. But there's always the tiny, tiny, tiny random chance that six things will suddenly wear out at the same time, in which case the plane crashes and we all die. And that's a horrible thing. And we can't control it. And I don't believe that praying to God will control it. I don't think that saying tefillah taderach, for example, which is an old Jewish tradition, will control it. So that's, that's the random piece, right? I hope I don't get a tumor. Well, so far as we know, and I, I, I speak as a complete non-expert here, so you'll forgive me if you are more of an expert. Um, tumors just, you know, they happen. In some cells, they happen, and it's just random chance, right? However, there are things that people can do to control the way the world works. So in case of tumors, if I smoke, well, I shouldn't hope nearly as much that I don't get a tumor because we know that that's not good, right? Or if I stay out in the sun without sunscreen, same kind of thing. In other words, what it does for hope is it puts the responsibility where I feel most comfortable with it being, and that is on human shoulders, right? Where is God in Darfur? Here, Right? Where was God in the Holocaust? Exactly in the places of the governments and the NGOs and the armies that might have been able to do something and didn't. So hope for me doesn't die. What it does is it becomes much more realistic. I hope I have the strength to do what I know I should do. I know that sometimes I don't. I know that sometimes I know exactly what I ought to do, and I don't do it because I'm lazy or I'm strong enough or I'm not courageous enough or I'm not energetic or whatever it is. Sometimes it happens. I hope I'll have the strength and energy and wisdom to do what I know I should do, and I hope the rest of the world will too, right? I also hope that I won't be at the wrong place at the wrong time and get hit by lightning, but if I do, it's just pure chance. Now, one of the things that I also realize about my own, my own beliefs is that there is a level of lack of control. A few years ago, I had a very interesting experience. I think I also mentioned this in the last chapter of the book. Um, I was on a, uh, on a, a boat um, off in the Pacific, off the coast of um, Santa Barbara in Channel Islands National Park. 
12 friends. Uh, we were on a, on a re, uh, kind of a big chill reunion. But the boat had room for like 20 people. So there were some other people that we didn't know. And one of the people we didn't know was a born-again Christian woman. And we were there, and we were on the boat for three days. And I, I had no contact with her except that every morning I was up in the bow of the boat where it was quiet, davening with my talus and tefillin, and she was up there sitting cross-legged on the, on the seat with her Bible, doing her Bible meditations. One day, on like the third day of our, of our boat trip, we had a two-and-a-half-hour time period where there was nothing to see, nothing to do. We just had to go from one place to another, and it was going to take a long time. So she and I sat in the sun, and we chatted. And it was absolutely eye-opening. What I learned was, for her, religion is about comfort and secure, comfortable and secure answers. Certainty. And for me, religion is about uncertainty and questions. Which is why Pesach is my single most favorite holiday, because it's a holiday of questions, not just the four, but the dozens and dozens and dozens of questions that come up through the Seder. Now, does that leave me a little less comfortable than my born-again Christian friend? Yeah, yeah. Her religion, at the end of the day, probably lets her sleep more peacefully because she knows for certain that the things that she believes in are right and true and comfortable and secure and neatly packaged. And at the end of the day, I know that my religious beliefs leave me with a, a more than a hint of uncertainty about human abilities, about chance, about all kinds of things. Um, that is in part and I guess this is a, a good place to conclude. And by the way, I'm, I'm delighted to hang out here and, and schmooze and take questions uh, after we break up. But that is in part one of the insights for me about Jewish life on the largest scale. It's about feeling comfortable with the uncertainty and the questions and the asking and the not knowing, because there's a lot of not knowing out there. There's not knowing in physics. We can't know those first fraction of a second after the Big Bang. We can't know what's at the center of a black hole. We just can't know. It's unknowable. It's cloaked from view. And we can't know a lot about God. It's just cloaked. It is, it is hidden. And we have to be comfortable with that. And so part of, for me, part of what being a Jew means is being comfortable with the questioning and preferring to, be, to question and to have my mind a little bit out of sync because I'm so filled with questions rather than having it all packaged very neatly. Thank you so much for inviting me. It has been a pleasure.